All right, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Acts. And uh, we are literally coming to the end of the book of Acts. I know I've been saying that for a little bit, but we are literally on the final stretches. If you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand. We would love to uh, pass out some Bibles to you guys. Uh, so we've been, we've been going through this great book, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, reading through it, making comments on it, seeing what God has to speak to us through this great author by the name of Luke as he tells us the story of how the early church was going from Jerusalem literally to the uttermost parts of the earth. So with that being said, what we've been looking at over the past couple weeks is primarily focusing on this character by the name of Paul the Apostle. Uh, What we mentioned last week was Paul, uh, who was once a Jewish rabbi, he was uh, very hostile towards Christianity, towards Jesus, towards people that were called uh, Christians or followers of the way. And uh, Paul was out to basically arrest and destroy and remove any type of threat of Christianity throughout the region of Jerusalem and other regions of the Roman Empire. But, as many of you already know, punchline, is uh, Paul meets Jesus. He gets radically transformed. And so rather than being this agent or force against Christianity, ends up becoming this agent and force for the spread of Christianity. And Paul wasn't just the guy that went around and talked about Jesus. He actually walked around, went around, and planted communities of Jesus. We call those churches. And the communities that Paul was planting were multicultural, multiracial, multigender. It was an amazing uh, breaking forth of God's kingdom in the world that the world had never seen before. Judaism wasn't even like this. In Judaism, it can be argued that was probably the most advanced type of religion upon the planet of its day. And yet, Paul was going around and revealing the kingdom of God in a way that was profound as he was bringing together all sorts of people under one roof in one community, not by way of coercion, not by way of threat, or not by way of any type of fear, but by way of love. And we called these things churches. And Paul was now, as he had gone around throughout this region of what's called Asia Minor, he planted all these churches in this particular region. Now, Paul was on his way back. He was making his way back to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. Uh, We'll get more into that in the following weeks to come uh, after the two-week little break that we will take a look at our vision and values and just kind of a cast of vision for that in the future. Um, But what we will do is that we will begin to see that as Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, he kind of makes his way by way of boat. He stops at some of these seaports. When he stops at these seaports, he stops and meets with the, uh, the communities of Jesus' people, these churches. And so what we saw last week is we described last week the message as flourishing communities of Jesus' people. That's too lengthy of a title, so I just wanted to kind of reduce it to something far more easier, which is flourishing communities. So we're just going to keep it at that, flourishing communities. Last week was basically part one. Uh, we couldn't get through all of what we had last week, so we're going to call this very creative, flourishing communities part Two. You guys, you guys awake? You guys doing good? Ready? Ready to jump in? So we're going to take a look at Paul's desire. As Paul is uh, circling back, communicating with these churches that he had an influence on planting, and now he's communicating to them. He's sharing with them his heart. He's breaking out for them, breaking down for them the important elements and the traits that really play into really the successful uh, migration from one generation to another generation. In other words, the idea would be able to plant a church community that doesn't just last for a handful of weeks or months or even years, but would last forever. And we mentioned this even last week, that when people become Christians, when they become followers of Jesus, 
Um, have you ever met people that at one point they started out strong, they were on fire for Jesus, they were uh, excited about Christ, but give them a little bit of time, a few months, a few years, and something wanes in their life. Maybe five years down the road, they're not passionate about Jesus anymore. Maybe 10 years down the road, they've completely abandoned the way of Jesus entirely. They're no longer following, no longer a disciple. Well, what Paul was concerned about was when you have a, a critical mass of people come together, we, we would call those a church. And Paul was concerned that this critical mass of Jesus' followers would remain faithful to Jesus for future generations to come. So what we began to look at last week was Paul's way of unpacking this. I'll just go through the ones that we looked at last week very briefly, and we'll just kind of jump back into the text and just continue to read where we left off, which is around verse 28 or so, something like that. So the first thing that we noticed was that Paul said, as we were looking at the passages, that these churches that would last forever, that would have this element of flourishing and life about them, first of all, they would have servant leaders, people that are involved in leadership in the church community that are, that are really uh, servants. And they're known for their character. Not so much by their charisma, not so much by how well they're able to talk or how great they dress or what type of haircut they have or how big of a critical mass they can assemble or how large of a community that they can have on a Sunday morning, but that the leaders would be identified and known for their ability to love and serve and have character, just like Jesus. And... The reality is that there, this, is a tenden- this is a problem within American churches today. There's a tendency for people to follow others that are known and identified simply for their charisma as opposed to their character. And so when somebody who is being followed for their charisma falls or commits adultery or does something heinous, there's this, this shock. Like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was about to happen. Well, the reality is that there is a tendency, a propensity to follow people based upon their charisma as opposed to character. And so the root cause, which is what are we looking for? What are the things that will actually carry on into future generations, successive future work of what God is doing? And I think, first of all, it's built upon a people that are filled and known by their servant attitude as well as their character. That's the first thing we looked at last week. Next thing we'll take a look at, and again, I'm going to move on from this really fast, is that these are leaders that proclaim the whole counsel of God. That's all I'm going to say. You can go back and listen to the message as it's all there on our website last week. Which, by the way, we just launched a brand new website this week. So we're really excited about that. Check it out, calvaryslow.com. There's a lot of stuff that we're going to be updating over the next few weeks. We're, we're pumped. So we hope you guys like it. Now, let's jump into today's content and begin to look at the passage in the text as we jump in. So why don't you guys have your Bibles open, Acts 20, verse 28 is where we're going to jump in. The third thing that we'll take a look at, there's a handful of headers or ideas that we will pause and reflect upon and think about as we just kind of make our way through this passage, uh, verse by verse, uh, throughout the end. Okay, so verse 28, first thing, the next thing that we see within the succession of ideas is that these communities that flourish, that have this lasting growth of flourishing, uh, they will also have an awareness of potential dangers. In other words, it's not all happiness, it's not all cute and all joyful and uh, just this idea of hype. At some point, there's this awareness that there are dangers, there are threats. Now, again, I'll talk more about this in just a moment, but there's a tendency even to go on the other end of becoming more imbalanced of saying, we just focus on the threats. The church is known for everything that it's against. That's not what this is talking about. This is just recognizing the fact that churches that last, communities that are built upon Jesus, there has to be some level of awareness 
that there are dangers, there are threats that are out there. This is what Paul says. Verse 28 uh, and 31, he says this, or 231, he says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, again, remember, he's talking to elders or leaders of the church, and then he's basically admonishing them. He says, guys, make sure that as you oversee and you lead and you serve this flock to whom God's called you to, to be careful, to be aware of the fact there are threats. There's imposing dangers that if you're not vigilant, if you're not aware, they will come in and they will begin to disrupt or corrupt the very work that Jesus began. He goes on to say, he says, uh, be, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. So pause on just that for a moment, this idea that uh, Paul introduces this phrase, that Jesus, introduced, uh, that Jesus purchased this church, this community, with his own blood. This is a really massive, heavy, loaded statement that actually is, if, again, I've mentioned this before, think of like hyperlinks or phrases that lead you to someplace else. This is sacrificial language. Now, don't think sacrificial in the sense of like pagan deities or entities. Think sacrificial in the sense of somebody actually giving themselves out of love and commitment to another. In this case, what Paul is saying is that Jesus comes, he lays his life down, he pays for something, the debt, the brokenness, the hurt, the sinfulness, for those to whom he loves, to whom he's committed to, a.k.a. the church. What Paul is saying is that this Christ, Jesus, loves this church, laid his life down for his bride, his church. And so what Paul is saying, be careful because God's called you to be overseers over this community. So be careful. Don't play around with it. Don't fleece the flock. Don't take advantage of the flock. Love the flock. Protect the flock. This is what faithful leaders do. And part of that protection comes by way of admonition. It comes by way of, of bringing forth warnings, of demonstrating there are occasions, things that we can stray from God. We would call this in maybe a business context, uh, drift, right? The idea of drift uh, you are drifting from the original aim or goal. That happens in the church all the time. It happens in our lives, individual lives, all the time. So we have to be careful. I like to think of it this way, that our lives uh, is, are, are like cars that have really bad alignment. You take your hand off the wheel for an instant and it begins to drift or veer. That's who we are. You stop paying attention. You stop observing. You stop living in awareness. You begin to drift. You begin to drift. And this is what Paul is saying, is that be aware, pay attention, because uh, Jesus loves his church. He paid for it with his own blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says this, of, uh, that he, Jesus, entered uh, once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing, what the writer of Hebrews would say, eternal redemption. In other words, Jesus did something by way of his sacrifice that brought about salvation, redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul would later write this. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So what we see is, that, again, he's just reminding these people that, that at the very core, the very heart of what your call is, is to recognize that the very people that you're called to serve are loved and redeemed by Jesus. What that means in a very practical sense, you guys, Calvary Slow family, those that have a commitment to Jesus, your commitment is not, first of all, in any way, shape, or form to the leadership of Calvary Slow, though there is a sense of trust that should be there. At the end of the day, 
our commitment, your commitment is to the one who gave his life for you, Jesus, with his own blood. In other words, he suffered, he died, he took upon something so profound and it was motivated not by obligation, but by sheer love for you. Receive that, think about that, consider that, reflect upon that. Let that become a motivator for worship in your own heart. And then Paul would go on to say in verse 29, he says, because I know that after my departure, there will come fierce wolves from among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you uh, with tears. So this is what Paul is basically saying, that there are at least two uh, avenues where threat will come in, one from the outside, uh, false teachers, false ideas, false ideologies will come in that will try to disrupt or corrupt the way that you think about this. Now, Paul doesn't give us any uh, inclination or ideas to what he's talking about here. It's very possible he's talking about what was known as the Judaizers. These are people that were overemphasizing Jewish law for uh, uh, non-Hebrew people. Um, but we're not absolutely certain. Uh, he might also be talking about the cults. Uh, the pagan cults that were there within the region of Ephesus um, uh, associated with like the temple of Diana. We don't really know. But the point of the matter is, is Paul's saying that there will come threats from outside the church community, but there will also come threats from within the community. People like what Jesus would say are like wolves in sheep's clothing. This is what Jesus would say later on, or earlier, and I, I should say in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. He says, watch out for false prophets. Uh, they come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're actually ferocious wolves. So the idea is that even Jesus, Paul, other New Testament writers, faithful people that love Jesus, that are committed to the flock, they will from time to time, in other words, if this is a regular steady diet, that's all, that's all you're being fed, is warning after warning after admonition after uh, fear that you should constantly be aware of, then at some point that's an imbalance. But there are occasions where warnings need to be posted because, again, the end game, the end uh, like aim that we're all shooting for is we want to be like Jesus. So there will come teachings that will try to influence you away from Christ. There's an author, a guy by the name of Steve Brown. He said this in one of his books. I actually have a few quotes from him today, which are so good. He says this, The wolves were those who would pervert the gospel. And at the same time, they were and are those who uh, seem to be the most obedient, the most godly, and the most spiritual. It's a really profound quote. Listen to it again. The wolves were those who would pervert the gospel. And at the same time, they were and perhaps are often those who seem to be the most obedient, most godly, most spiritual. Um, in other words, what he's saying is that there are oftentimes teachers that look Christian, look good, but at the end of the day, the message they communicate or teach may steer someone away from simplicity and love and worship of Christ as center of all things. So what he's saying is that we've got to be careful about this. So if you want my advice to think about this, um, we live in a culture in which we are constantly bombarded by information, podcasts, uh, YouTube videos, all sorts of stuff online, on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Don't be afraid to read stuff. There's a tendency, I think, within Christian circles to be like, burn your books. They're all bad unless they are purchased from our bookstore. Um, don't be afraid to read. I, I think that mentality or option actually leads to a, a really bad inbreddedness where people are constantly walking around uh, terrified 
They're afraid of every little thing. But don't be afraid to read. But what I would suggest, if you are going to read authors that may or may not be controversial, I would highly recommend you read rebuttals from good authors that uh, might have some level of credibility uh, and responsibility. Read a variety. Don't be afraid of reading broadly, but read a sense of variety. Read authors that you may or may not necessarily agree with that might actually contradict what you are thinking. But then also read authors that might contradict that because the idea is that don't be afraid. I mean, ultimately go back to Scripture. Everything should bring us back to Scripture. But don't be afraid of listening to critiques on controversial subject matter. So that's what I have to say there. Lastly, I want you to think about this. Are there warnings Are there warnings in your life, to just kind of pause and reflect upon this, are there areas of warning in your life that you may need to pay attention to? Like right now, are there things that maybe someone who's a godly person, who loves Jesus, who who has mentioned something to you about an area in your life that maybe you need to pause and reflect and say, do I need to take warning, or heed this warning? We got some (laughs) challenges back there. Man. Some, get them on the worship team now. We need some singers. It's a future, future worship leader right back there. It's awesome. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, the next thing that I see that flourishing communities also will have this, what I would just describe as this culture of grace. Listen how Paul would say this in our next verses. We're making our way through this. Verse 32, he says, I commend you now to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So first of all, two things that we notice is that God's grace leads to two things, at least what he points out here. Number one, that it would build you up rather than tear you down. God's grace is always intended to strengthen you, to build you up. Again, like what we mentioned earlier, it's okay in this community to not be okay. That becomes the breeding ground for grace to begin to do what grace does in a person's life. But when we become this community that acts like we have it all together, we have it all figured out, we got the answers, we know everything about everything, and we strive for perfection here, that when we act like that and people come in and they're ruffled by the world and by their own sin, by their own sinful proclivities, they come in and they don't feel safe. The the environment in which flourishes the most is one that literally has this culture, this atmosphere of grace. And he says it's able to build you up, and also at the same time, it's able to really bring you into this inheritance of all those who are called or set apart or sanctified, is where that is used here, unto God. Uh, I want to read a couple other quotes, and then we'll move on to the next one, again, by this guy named Steve Brown. If you've never read anything by him, highly recommend him. He's, a, he's amazing. This guy has some incredible stuff that he's written. He's got a podcast. You can check it out. Listen to what he says. Uh, the good news is that Jesus... Christ frees us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, or our correctness. Religion has made us obsessive. Jesus invited us to a dance, and we've turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and are in step and in line, or are we in line with the other soldiers? Isn't that a great line? Like Jesus is saying, come, come, be part of what I'm doing here. It's like a dance. Join the celebration. We're like... It's about 
order and orderliness and everything has to be nice, neat, and organized and decently. Now, again, some might say, well, Paul said, let everything be done in decency and order. Yes, true, but that does not in any way, shape, or form mean that we turn into hardened type of people. Again, is there an atmosphere where it's okay to not be okay? And this is what he's basically striving to kind of point out. Next uh, line as he goes on in this little quote, as he goes on, he says this. He says, you are really and truly and completely free. I posted this on my Facebook this morning. It was so good. You are really and truly and completely free. There is no kicker. There is no if and or but. You are free. You come, you can do it right or you can do it wrong. You can obey or disobey. You can run from Christ or run to Christ. You can choose to become a faithful Christian or an unfaithful Christian. You can cry, cuss, spit, laugh, sing, and dance. You can read a novel or read your Bible. You can watch television or pray. You're free, really free. But the natural question that oftentimes rises in people's mind is this. Well, how do we control people then? That's what religion asks. Like, how do we control, how do we keep people holy? And really religious type people, they would hear this and they would stumble over this because this is scandalous. It's like saying you're giving people carte blanche to do anything they want, but keep following this train of thought. He goes on to say, the only people who get better are people who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. Did you hear that? So good. I'm going to read it again. The only people who are going to get better, in other words, make progress spiritually, in other words, grow in holiness, or in other words, become more sanctified, all the words that we use to describe advancement, growth, spiritual maturity, all of that happens when we begin to fully embrace the reality that you are loved by God, even if you don't. But do you understand what that does? By receiving this, it actually rewires your heart to say, I'm loved with that level and that degree and that volume of love? Yes. I don't want to miss out on that. I don't want to be apart from that. I don't want to stop being where that's at. I want to be where that's at. I want to throw myself entirely at that love. I want to become vulnerable and open and malleable and shapeable by that God that is that type of love. And do you realize that when it happens, you actually change? You do change? You do become more holy? It's not by way of coercion. It's not by way of fear or force. It's by way of love. So, culture of grace. Uh, let me, let me make this quick statement. Uh, if you read in the book of uh, Revelation, I think it's like chapter 2, the very first part of chapter 2. Uh, let me read this. It's, it's that important. That Jesus actually writes this letter to these guys. Now, listen to what he says. Uh, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, I write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks among the seven golden lamps. And he says, I know your works. And your toil, your patient endurance, and how that you cannot bear those who are evil, but you have tested all things. So again, we talked about the admonitions to be aware. Jesus is saying you guys have done a great job standing against heresy, false teaching, false ideas, false prophets. You've done a great job in that. You guys are busy. You have a lot of good stuff. You're very active in what you do in the community and in the church. But I got this one thing against you. You've left your first love. I, I think what he's saying is that somewhere along the line, 
that culture of grace in which everything started uh, derailed. Somewhere along the line. Somewhere along the line. In that community, it no longer became okay to not be okay. Somewhere along the line, it became this obsessive need to control or coerce the, uh, or manufacture the growth of people for whatever reason. Somehow love departed. And Jesus basically invites him to come back to this element of love. All right. Uh, question. Simple question. How has... God's grace amazed you. Let's take inventory. Think about this. When, when was the last time that the stunning, scandalous, beautiful, complex grace of God amazed you, blew your mind, caused you to burst out in just maybe tears of worship, of praise, of sheer amazement, when was the last time you were moved by grace to the point where it, it, it lit a fire in your heart that says, I want to be where he's at. In anywhere in my life where I'm not where God's at, I want to be where he's at because I want to be where he's at. And I want to be able to be a vehicle, a channel, an agent of grace. You realize when you get, again, critical mass of people together that have been amazed by God's grace, you have this culture of, of grace where it's okay to be, not be okay. Lastly, we see that there's this, uh, or second to last, I should say, we're almost done, this culture of generosity. This environment would have this culture of generosity. Again, continuing through the passage, we see verse 33. He uh, says this, Paul reveals, he said, I've coveted no man's silver, gold, or apparel. You always know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things. I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, who, made him, who himself said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. That phrase, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Interestingly enough, did you know this? That, that is not recorded anywhere in the New Testament. Anywhere you cannot find that. It's not in the gospel accounts. So this kind of has been a baffling reality for a lot of scholars and people that are, that are, that are trying to understand scripture. And uh, so it makes people wonder, like, where, where did this come from? Well, this is probably a very good example of what we would call an oral tradition, an oral word that was passed down. And Paul's saying that we all know, we all know that this is what Jesus said, it's more blessed, it's better to give than it is to receive. So what's Paul stating here? I think what Paul is identifying the fact that there was this culture of generosity. That Paul said, look, when I was among you guys, I didn't take any money from you. Now, Paul is not in any way, shape, or form saying that ministers of the gospel should not take any money. Because there's other places in which Paul says, uh, ministers worth his wages. So in other words, if you've got a guy that's working full time, or a handful of people, guys and gals that are working full time serving Jesus, it's okay to pay them. It's okay because they have devoted themselves to the ministry, to the work of God. So pay them. That, that's how we work here, by the way. I, I, mean, I don't know if you knew like the underworkings of how things happen here. Like, like, um, uh, and everybody here that's part of our staff, uh, they work very hard. We have a very small staff um, in relation to the size of our church. Um, we've, we've done all sorts of studies to identify this. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, that, that's how this works. As you give faithfully, regularly, generously to this church, uh, it allows people to do what they do, which is to train up disciples and you know, create the, the things that we have that we call for this church. Paul is not saying it's not okay for anybody to take money. But Paul is saying that when I, when I worked among you, I did not take any money. And there's a reason for that because Paul did not want any way his working among them or him taking money from them to be a stumbling block to them. So Paul says, I worked with my hands because what I wanted to convey to you 
or to create for you, to cultivate within your midst, is this generosity. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Um, do you know that you cannot outgive God ever? Sometimes we live in fear. We live sort of with this um, mentality of scarcity. I don't have that much to give. I don't have that much time to give. My life is, and we say this all the time, especially in America, in the West, in California, and the Central Coast. We say all the time, I'm so busy. So I don't have enough bandwidth to give time and energy away to something else. Um, sometimes that can be operating in a scarcity mentality. I don't have that much to give, so therefore I will not give that much. But what if we rewired ourselves to, through the lens of the gospel that said the very heart of the gospel is about God generously giving himself, withholding nothing for our own good so that we can become recipients of that. That's why God is the most joyful being in the entire universe because he's the most generous. It truly is more blessed to give than it is to receive. God is the greatest giver, which means that God has to be the happiest being, entity in the entire cosmos. And it's always that God has his invitation extended to you and I to say, join me, partner with me, find joy, find the sense of blessedness, happiness, satisfaction that comes with giving yourself away, being generous. When a culture, an environment, a community is filled with this type of generosity, when needs arise, people are the first on the phone or creating a Facebook or GoFundMe page, be like, let's figure out a way to help you, let's cry tears alongside you, let's have uh, uh, moments of uh, uh, pain and sorrow as you weep and as you have pain and sorrow, when generosity is part of the integrated reality of a community, that community will, will last. When that community becomes stingy, when people become very calculated about how they're going to give and very careful and uh, contrived as to what they're able to give away or how they're able to constantly assessing their bandwidth and what they have, um, then at some point, at some point, um, drift begins to happen and generations go by and you have this community where it's ceased looking at others around and giving away with great generosity like God did for us. Lastly, and I'm done, is we also see that these communities would have this incredible element of relational commitment. Again, just continuing through the story, the passage that we see here in verse 36, it says this. And when he had said these things, Paul, he says, uh, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of them all and they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because... The word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. And so Paul gets on the ship and then begins to make his way back to Jerusalem. But what I want you to notice, just by the way, this is not emphasized in the text, but uh, if you've been paying attention, you, you would have noticed this. But the reality is, who are these people to whom Paul is becoming incredibly vulnerable to, to the level of actually weeping with them? This blew my mind when I was thinking about this. These are ethnically different people than Paul. These are people that at one point he was out to throw in jail, if not maybe even murder. These would be people ethnically, they were non-Jewish, meaning they were not part of this tribe, his kin, his group, his family, his bros, his hood, however you want to describe it. These are people that Paul would have, prior to meeting Jesus, been actually uncomfortable with. But here's Paul on his knees with these people, weeping, crying. You have this element of relational commitment it's not just surfacey. It's not just 
a nod in one direction saying, what's up? I like you. It's, it's a sense of like, I will weep with you. I will cry with you. I will suffer alongside you. We will go through this pain and anguish and agony and difficulty together as well as the joys and celebration and the childbirth and the weddings and all this other amazing stuff that play into life in general. We will do this together because that's what the church does. We walk side by side in relational commitment. When any of these elements that we looked at begin to wane or fall apart, uh, you literally have this concoction or this recipe for drift. So think about these areas in your own life. Generosity. Are, are you a generous person? Would you describe yourself as generous? Do you give away who you are, what you are, your energy, your time, your money, with a sense of saying, there's a need, I'm going to help. There's a place to participate. They have a need in an area of the church to serve, children's ministry, leading a small group, joining a small group, someone making food. I want to join, I want to give. It's not this constant calculating, I don't have time, my bandwidth is too small. It's a way of saying generosity. What about grace? What type of grace environment do you live in? What type of grace environment do you create? What about your homes? What about your, uh, your families or your roommates, the people that you do life with? What type of, how do they view you? Are you one that is oozing, flowing with grace? Is it okay for people to be in your presence that are not okay? I mean, literally, they are not okay. They may have incredible struggles, even struggles that you would find maybe repulsive or disgusting or off-putting. But nonetheless, because grace oozes from you, it's, it's, it's okay, because all of this is how God responded to us. Do you, do you realize that's exactly what the heart of the gospel is? That God knew, regardless of how broken and ruined and messed up and rebellious and sinful you and I have been and or are, he still comes into this world and willingly lays his life down and purchases us, purchases us with his blood that he shed. Just like Paul said, this love is unstoppable. Do you understand that? The love of God for you is absolutely, completely unstoppable. But oftentimes, we say, no, thank you. I'll take Instagram. I'll take this relationship with so-and-so that's going to break apart in six months. I will take something else as a replacement. The invitation of the gospel is always the same, is to lay down our guards, to become vulnerable before the one who became vulnerable before us. And that's where we end this chapter. And we will pick up the book of Acts after this little two-week series. Again, don't miss next week. Be that important to kind of cast a vision as to what we're excited about seeing God do in our lives. So let's respond now. How about we all stand? I'll have the worship team come on up. I'll pray. We'll respond by partaking in communion, sing a song, worship, respond to God. If you have any areas in your life you need prayer, I'm going to pray for you. It's okay to not be okay, but we have a God that doesn't want to just leave us. In the not okay state, he wants to help us. If anything, he wants to come alongside of us in our status and demonstrate to us the beauty of his grace and his redemptive healing love. So, we pray, we'll sing, respond.
partake of communion. I'll let you guys go. Jesus, thank you for your love, your grace. We want, Lord, this house of worship to be a place that is marked by grace, marked by generosity, marked by an ability to warn and be aware of those things that can cause us to drift, but also at the same time reveling in the good news, the gospel, the full counsel of God. So Jesus, uh, meet us now as we respond to you.